Hi, I'm Colleen. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image to resemble us, so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Amy. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 2, 42 through 47. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day, they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Roy. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found today in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Jesus responded to the Jewish leaders, I assure you that the Son can't do anything by himself except what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he does. He will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. As the Father raises the dead and gives life, so too does the Son give life to whomever he wishes. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we ask this morning that as we're gathered here that you would speak to us through your word. Let your Holy Spirit take these words, your scripture, and breathe them into our hearts. Speak to us, show us ways that our lives can continue to be changed until we are conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with all of you on this first Sunday of August. Can you believe we're already getting going back into all of our stuff for the fall? This is week nine of a series that we've been in for really pretty much the whole summer called Grow, and we're wrapping up this series today, and then next week we'll begin a series through the book of Romans that'll take us all the way until Advent. But on this series, rather than working through a particular text methodically as we will do when we go through Romans, this has been a series where we've used kind of the same text. I don't know if you've caught it, but the same Acts 2 passage has been our New Testament reading um, uh, almost every week during this series as a way of talking about how we become the church. And so we've looked at practices of the early Christians, practices of the first church and the ways that they devoted themselves to particular practices that helped shape them as the people of God. And so one of the phrases that we've used throughout the series is that there are practices that we do 
that help us, that we do together as the church, that help us to pay attention to and participate in God's work. And so when we look at this text here in Acts 2 one more time, we realize that it begins by saying that they devoted themselves, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, to their prayers, and a sense of awe came over them. And we skip down here to verse 47, which is where we are today. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the witness of the early church. How is it that their lives began to bear witness to the good news of Jesus as Lord and Savior? And so the first thing I kind of want us to observe is this verse here says that it's the Lord who added daily. Now, some of us may, may stop right there and say, oh, it's the Lord who adds daily, so we don't need to worry about what we do. It's okay. Hey, pressure's off. Just, just whatever will be, just do whatever you want. Let the Lord take care of growing the church. But the other part of the verse says, and they demonstrated God's goodness. Now, some translations say they had favor with the people around them. Now, we understand that this favor doesn't mean that there wasn't opposition, because all we need to do is keep reading in the book of Acts and realize there was opposition, and yet they were able to demonstrate God's goodness. So I want us to hold together both of these things. It is the Lord who adds to his church, and it is the way we join his work is by demonstrating his goodness in our lives. And so I want us to zoom in a little bit more this morning and to say, how do we do that? In what way do our lives put on display in the world God's goodness? Acts 1.8, before Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, he says to the disciples, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we hear this verse and we think, this is it. The gospel is going to spread to all of the world because of these disciples, because of these super Christians. And so we make the mistake of thinking that, oh, because Jesus said it was them, that, that, and then we think of the remarkable stories of maybe miracles through Peter and Paul's amazing teaching and preaching, and so we sort of think, oh, I bet that Christianity spread because there were great preachers and great miracle workers. Well, there's no denying that those folks were part of the story, but the real beauty of how the gospel spread in the first few centuries was not that it took place through super Christians, super preachers, super apostles, but that actually it spread through ordinary believers. In fact, one of the commentaries in the book of Acts that I was reading said that the gospel advanced largely through the words and deeds of unordained and uneducated people, informal missionaries, this person says, informal missionaries. I, a, a, a congregant told me after the 9 a.m. service that he had been at a previous church where they gave him a certificate that said, we commission you to your work as a veterinarian, but really as an incognito missionary. I like that. The idea that all of us informally, unofficially, in terms of how we think, official to the Lord, are sent into the world as missionaries. 
Rodney Stark is a historian and sociologist at Baylor, and he's done a lot of work applying sociological models to the first few centuries of Christianity to say, wait a minute, we can explain certain things after Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire in the late 300s, but how in the world did it go from this outlawed illegal religion in an empire that really embraced all other religions, how did it go from this fledgling faith to this widespread dominant faith. And Stark says mostly the church spread as ordinary people accepted it and shared it with their families and friends. Sociologists called this a social network. Not Facebook. I mean like a, a, a real human social network of family and friends. And the faith was carried from one community to another in this way, probably most often by regular travelers such as merchants, road trips, business trips, all of the stuff, all of the traveling that was done in the, in the first few centuries of Christianity, it was carried by ordinary people. Now the book of Acts gives us a glimpse into this. Acts 8 verse 4 says, those who had been scattered moved on preaching the good news along the way. I like this word scattered. Because as we've gone along this series, the practices we do together as the church, we've talked about the apostles' teaching, we've talked about fellowship, we've talked about prayer, we've talked about simplicity and generosity and all of these different ways that we become the people of God. Last week, we talked about the gathered church, what we do when we gather together and why the gathered church is so important. And yet, the church is more than its gathering. Their church is more than its gathered self, than its gathered identity. There is a scattered church. The church dispersed, the church sent back into all the world. And here they are, forced to move out of Jerusalem. And yet, they said, fine, everywhere we go, we'll just carry the good news that way. We'll just let our scattering be an opportunity to carry the good news. Michael Green, in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, said, they were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere spreading the good news, which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. Now catch this. This must often have been not formal preaching, but informal chattering. I just love that he said the word chattering. Informal chattering. To friends and chance acquaintances. Where? In homes, wine shops, and walks around market stalls. They went everywhere, here's a killer phrase, gossiping the gospel. I love that. I mean, just, it gives you a little picture. Just, have you heard? Did you know? This person, Jesus, he changed everything. What? Have you heard about so-and-so? What happened to them? They're no longer a drunk. They're living their life this way. They've, what? 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 The tax collector, Zacchaeus, he paid back everything, and they're gossiping the gospel all along. I love that phrase. And they did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say so, that sort of a thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously, and the movement spread notably among the lower classes. So this is why it's so interesting to me. Maybe you've been in a setting, maybe at a college classroom or a different environment where someone has tried to say, you know, the only reason Christianity spread was because of imperialism and colonialism and the empire and blah, blah, blah. Look, there's something that changes in the character of Christianity when it becomes the official religion of Rome, and we can trust that God used it while at the same time acknowledging that there were excesses and, and misuses of those power as well. Both of those things are true. 
But the most remarkable thing is not Christianity post the late 300s, it's Christianity pre. How in the world in those first couple hundred years did it go from this persecuted, fledgling, marginalized, looked down upon faith to being so widespread that even Caesar had to say, gosh, I think there's something to this. And so it's not a top-down movement where people in power said you must. It was a grassroots movement where lower class and merchants and tradespeople all along their trade routes in daily life were gossiping the gospel. And so I want to talk to you today about work as a way of witnessing to Jesus. Now, you heard this morning about Alpha coming up this fall. We love Alpha because Alpha is that natural way of continuing the conversations that you have over the backyard fence and, and with some folks after work or at the coffee shop. And maybe you're, you're used to having little, little itty bits of these conversations with your friends and coworkers and neighbors. Alpha is a chance to say, would you like to talk more about that? And then we set tables up in the, in the, at the commons. We serve a wonderful dinner. We show a short video. And then at the tables, people just get to explore all of their questions about Jesus, about faith, about what this whole thing is, a, is about. And it's, a, it's an extension of those informal conversations. But this morning, I want you to think for a moment about the different social networks or the networks in your life. Again, not Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. You know, No, think about your very first network of relationships, your family. Think about extended family, cousins, second cousins, once removed, in-laws, outlaws, all of that stuff, right? Then think about another network of relationships. Think about your neighborhood. Think about the people to your left, to your right, across the street, diagonal, all of the way and to say, do I know these people in our area, in our neighborhood? Now think about all the people that are in the same, act, you know, if you're in the stage of life like, like we are, th- whose kids are in the same activities as your kids, you know, you're like carpooling to soccer and dance and, you know, theater and whatever, and those other parents and families. And now think about the network of work, your work life. That's where I want to zero in this morning, your work life. Think about your colleagues, your clients, maybe even your competitors. How can work be a part of our witness? And so the statement that I want to put out there this morning as we begin to unpack this is that actually we witness not only with our words, but actually with our work itself, that our work is a way of bearing witness to who God is. The very work that we do now. For some of you, when you hear that, you're like, no, it's not. My work is from the devil. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and I, listen, when you, when you talk to fellow Christians, I have realized there's a couple different ways of thinking about work. And maybe first among them is that work is a result of the fall. I hate my, I wish we, I can't wait for heaven when we don't need to work anymore because work was the result of the fall. Actually, it's not. Our Old Testament reading this morning was Genesis 1, and God says, let's make humans in our image and then let them reflect our rule. Let them have dominion, and that dominion is not exploit, manipulate, control, dominate. No, that rule is cultivate. That's why it's very symbolic that their first work was gardening, 
was to tend a garden, that maybe God is trying to help us understand that the call to work is the call to pick up a shovel and make the ground produce something that can be a benefit to you, that can be a benefit to others. This is how we join God. God, the creator, notice that he doesn't create the whole world complete. It's perfect, but not fully complete. Why? Because he wants humans to join him in extending this. Take the beginning here in the garden and extend it outward. Be fruitful and multiply this. Let fruitfulness and flourishing be the result of your cultivation of the world. That's the calling to work. So work is not the result of the fall. The fact that we toil and sweat is the result of the fall, but work itself is not. Now, that might be bad news because you're like, what? I hate my job. I've talked to, I remember a couple of years ago, I talked to this couple that had retired early and they were school teachers. They were school teachers. One was an administrator and, and, and they're like, Glenn, we did our service to the community. We were teachers. Like, do you know how little we made? And they go on and on. And they're like, we've done our service. This is now our time. This is our time. And so they, they're like, we fill our days with golfing, with taking the boat out. This is... This, social events. This is our, we've done our service. And so we have this idea that, okay, maybe God wants us to work, but that's just for a season. The real goal of life is retirement. A couple days ago, Holly was gone for the day. And so I had the kid, all four kids, and we were looking for some, something new and affordable to do. So we went to the thrift store and, um, and we picked up a couple of board games for like three bucks. And one of them was the game called Life. Now, I've never played the game called Life, um, but my kids were very excited about this. So as we were playing this, I realized that the way you win in life is by retiring with the most amount of money. And it was troubling because we, we, we then had to have this parental conversation to say, now, now, that may be how you win the board game of life, but I don't think Jesus defines winning as retiring with the most amount of money, Right? But I realize that for so many of us, even as Christians, we have not integrated work and faith. And so faith is just something we do. Jesus washed my sins away. Can't wait to fly away to heaven. And then work, oh yeah, the devil and all that. Gotta go to, gotta you know, pay the bills and do my necessary stuff. There's nothing redemptive about it. There's nothing holy about it. It's a necessary evil. And just please God, help me have a good retirement. My hope for you this morning is that you have an expanded view by the end of our time together. The other kind of view that Christians sort of have about work is the only thing that is redemptive about work is the the money that that it allows us to earn so that we can provide for our family and support ministries. And so the only thing redemptive about our jobs is, well, hey, look, I can provide. Great, that is true. That's a part of the redemptive value of work. Or to say, well, look, we can give to the needy, or we can be generous, and we can support missionaries, and we can honor the Lord with our first fruits. All of that is true. But it's not all that is true. It's not the only, it's not the only thing that redeems your work. So this morning, I want to say four things to you about how we redeem our work, how our work itself can be a participation in the mission of God. Are you ready? Number one, differentiate between vocation and occupation. 
Now, this may be like, oh, a technicality, and you're like, I don't understand what's the difference. Why do I have to think about, why do I have to learn different words? Vocation comes from this Latin idea of a calling, the voice, the calling. And so vocation has to do with who God has called us to be. Occupation, maybe we can use that word to speak about the job or the task or the assignment that occupies us, that occupies our hands and our gifts and our talents and all of that. Now, sometimes they overlap, but sometimes they don't. And this is important for young people. Some of, some of you as young people, you're waiting for that ideal moment where your sense of calling and that thing that pays the bills autom- line up 100%. And I want to say that discovering and discerning your vocation is really kind of a lifelong journey. And in the meantime, it's okay to get a job. (laughs) Because they're not always the same thing. Your vocation and your occupation, are, are re- it's really important to differentiate that. So in Genesis 1, when God says, let's make them to reflect our image, to extend our rule in the world, to, to, to reflect a wise and loving ordering of the world, that's our calling. But the way you do that can change. There, there might be different occupations that you have in life. And so the second thing I want to say is discern your vocation prayerfully and communally. Discern it prayerfully and communally. Say, Lord, what are the things that you've knit together in me? What are the things that you've placed in me that reveal where I am supposed to give my life to, regardless of the job that I'm in? How can I do? Where is the intersection of my skill and my passion and the need of the world? In fact, I think very often we hear kind of a secularized version of this, which is, what are you passionate about? What are you good at? And step three, where can you make the most money? Basically, what skills and passion can you monetize? That's not evil. That's good. But I think as a Christian, there's one more layer, and that is, where is the place of the world's pain? How can your passion and skill and all of that coincide with a place where the world is in need of help and healing. I love this quote from Frederick Buchner. He says, the place where God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Isn't that beautiful? The place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's the place that God is calling you to. That is the place where the Lord knit you together in your mother's room and to say, okay, Lord, I, I want to live out this calling in whatever job I'm in. Maybe, maybe I'll live this out first as a Starbucks uh, a worker and then, and then it'll, it'll change and then it'll change after that. But I want to become aware of the way that my deep gladness and the world's deep pain coincide in such a way that I understand my calling and my contribution to the world. Amen? I remember, for me, shifting um, my occupation as I began to discern my vocation. And so, uh, about 10 years ago or so, when I I turned 30, there's a clue about my age, uh, I met with one of my mentors, and he was in his 60s at the time, and I was sensing the, the Lord drawing me to do less and less with music and to step into more of a teaching and pastoral role. Now, 
What he didn't know is that actually from my childhood, I'd always wanted to teach the Word of God. In fact, when my sibling, when my sister and our cousins, and we'd get together and, you know, do some sort of talent show for the family, you know, they would all do a skit and I would inflict a sermon upon them as a 10-year-old, you know, and so, so I kind of knew this is something that communally my family and friends would say, eh, you should pay attention to that, that's there, right? And I remember sitting across this table at Panera with this a friend of mine in his 60s, and I said, I'm sensing that it's time to start making the shifts because I, I, I'm not sure I want to do the, the worship leading thing for the next 20, 30 years. And he, he kind of looked at me and he said, are you sure? I mean, basically, don't quit your day job, Glenn. Like, really? I mean, I don't know if you're good at anything else, you know? And he, and he encouraged me to kind of take these low-cost kind of risks. And he said, okay, so you love speaking. Okay, that's great. Why don't you take a few steps in that direction? So how often are you speaking now? And I said, well, I teach maybe twice a year at the college ministry at New Life. He goes, twice a year. That's not enough. Say yes to a few more things. So he said, within reason, say yes to as many of those opportunities as you can to speak. So I did. So for the next year, I spoke at FCAs. I spoke at Air Force Academy groups. I spoke at uh, um, uh, a homeschool moms group. I spoke at a group of aspiring writers. I don't know why. I hadn't really written at the time, and, and I just said yes. Anytime groups are like five, six, whatever. Anytime someone said, would you come and share? I said, yes, I'll do it. And I realized that my vocation, my calling to help people see the Lord through his word, it began to become clearer to me. And then I, I look back at every time I was leading worship and I realized that moment between maybe song two and song three where you might say something as a worship I realized that that something was getting longer and longer. <laughs> you know, and people were like, would you just, just sing already, you know, I thought, you know, maybe, and all of a sudden with my community and through prayer, I began to discern this vocation, but the third thing I want to say, very closely related to that, is that recognize that your vocation can take the shape, can be lived out in many different occupations, your vocation can be lived out in many different occupations. So just because you say, well, I feel like the Lord is calling me to help people come to a place of emotional and spiritual health. And so you think, therefore, I'm supposed to be a counselor. Well, maybe. But this morning after the 9 a.m. service, I talked with a young man who is working for a defense, Department of Defense contractor. And he said, I'm not in a role of a counselor, but through my work, I realize my role with the people that I work with is to help them come to emotional and spiritual health. And I thought, that's beautiful. Because you can come, become aware of your calling, but it can be expressed through many different occupations. And this is why I think it's helpful to separate those things, to realize, wait a minute, I, maybe it's not as narrow as I thought. Maybe even now I can start to express this vocation. One of the great mistakes of youth is to believe that you have to put your calling on hold until you land the perfect job. And so to be able to say, in what small way can I live out this calling now? And actually, people who are farther in life than me would say, there are no perfect conditions to live out your calling. There are no perfect conditions. Forget it. Every job, every church, every ministry, it's all going to be flawed. So just find ways to live out your calling where you are. There's many different occupations that this can take. When I was um, um, about eight years old, we were part of this amazing church in Malaysia, 
And they had these children's retreats, family camps, but, but just with kids and, and teachers and workers. And it was a really powerful time. And I had a buddy in those days named David Lee. And David and I, would, we were, we, I mean, we'd run around together. Our families were, were close at the church. And, and so we went to these, we'd go to these camps. And I remember one year, it was probably when we were about eight or nine, this missionary lady, this American missionary lady named Jeanette, McKee stood up to speak and she had this amazing way of just with her quiet voice calming a room full of kids sitting on the floor on mats. You know, imagine that. And she just calmed the whole room and she had this gentle way of speaking and she told us story after story of people who'd given their lives to serve the Lord. And one of the stories that stuck with me was the story of David Livingston. And she talked about how David Livingston began to discern the Lord's call on his life. And so at the end of that meeting, she said, kids, if there's anybody here who are sensing the, the call of the Lord on your life, you, the, the desire to surrender to him, to serve him with your life, would you come forward and let us pray for you? And I have this in, burned in me memory of going up to the front at eight or nine and just weeping my eyes out, saying, Lord, here's my life. Use me. Take me. I, I want to be useful to you. And and I looked over, and there was my buddy, David Lee, saying the same thing, just crying. Little kids, you know, just, oh, Lord, use me. And as David and I, you know, would talk, he would say, I think I want to be a missionary, maybe even a doctor someday. When I was 10, I moved away, our family moved away from Malaysia. We moved to the States. We lived in Portland, Oregon for three years. And then we moved back to Malaysia, and I reconnected with my friend David and... and uh, it was amazing to see that the faith was still strong in him. And so we were kind of leaders together in our youth group. And we'd have all kinds of fun and lead trips and camps and share stuff. And, and in his life, he had still nurtured the sense of calling that he was going to be uh, a missionary doctor someday. Well, when I left Malaysia at 17 to come back to the States to go to college and then, you know, didn't know I'd end up finding my wife and then, you know, being here, being, becoming a citizen and all of that. I've just lost touch with David. It's been over 20 years. Until recently, just a few months ago, I saw an article someone had posted online. And it was the story of a young lady named Blair. Blair has cystic fibrosis, which means for her that about, she's functioning at about one-fifth of her lung capacity. And four years ago, she moved from a different part of California to Fresno, to attend Fresno State, and she needed to find a doctor who could help her with her treatments. She ended up finding a doctor who is the center director of cystic fibrosis program, the cystic fibrosis program through UCSF Fresno. That doctor is David Lee. Now, Blair has attended Fresno State classes planned around a rigorous daily medical routine, including being fed through a tube, taking lots of pills, breathing treatments, and sometimes medicine administered through an IV. The breathing treatments are administered several times a day by connecting her to a machine that looks like this. This is Blair, and that's David. Blair has actually been able to administer most of her medical treatments herself so that she could go to class Something that's not normally possible for cystic fibrosis patients, but something made possible because of the way my friend, David Lee, made it happen. In the interview, David said, I realized a long time ago that if I just was focused on the medical stuff, I would have accomplished very little. 
I wanted her to have a full social life, family life. And so I needed to make sure that I met her parents, met her friends, whenever they came to visit them in the hospital. So I became part of her extended family. And with that kind of trust, she really flipped a switch. This May, Blair graduated from Fresno State. And my childhood buddy, David Lee, was there in attendance, sobbing like a baby. And I thought, there are many ways of being a missionary. And David, you did it. You did it. Living out that calling, bringing hope to someone, helping them reach their dreams. I think this story is not only an example of how our calling can be embodied in different ways, but I think it's also a reminder that for all of us as followers of Jesus, there's something about our calling that is meant to carry healing to people. And so that's the last thing I want to say. Embrace the Christ-shaped vocation as a healer. Embrace the Christ-shaped vocation as a healer. Now, when you think about the Genesis story, it says, reflect God's rule, cultivate the world. But what's happened to the world since the fall? It's not just this neutral ground that we're supposed to plant in and sow in and cultivate. It's become a world that is infected with sin. A world that is shot through with a sickness called selfishness and idolatry and rebellion against God. And so maybe a better way to understand our calling is not simply as gardeners and farmers cultivating in the world, but actually as healers. See, this is why I think when Jesus came to the world and he started announcing the kingdom of God is here, what were the signs that the kingdom was here? He was healing the sick. John the Baptist is in this moment of doubt, and he says, how will I know? Are you the one, or should we look for another? And Jesus says, you tell him, the blind see, the lame walk. You tell him all of these things are happening. Why? Because the sign of God's kingdom arriving is not just cultivation and fruitfulness, but it's a sign that things that were sick are being made whole again. Things that were bent and broken are being put back together again. Things that have gone off the rails are now realigned on the tracks again. This is the sign that the kingdom has come. So you want to know how your work participates in the kingdom mission of God? It's when you start to see your work as a healer. It's when you start to see your line of work as healing work. Parents who stay at home, work from the home, people who are going out into different occupations, your line of work is an occasion to bring healing. This is a long quote from N.T. Wright, but I think it's so stunningly beautiful. I want to read all of it. He says, we need Christian people to work as healers, as healing judges and prison staff, as healing teachers and administrators, as healing shopkeepers and bankers, as healing musicians and artists, as healing writers and scientists, as healing diplomats and politicians. Yes, it's possible. We need people who will hold on to Christ firmly with one hand and reach out the other with wit and skill and cheerfulness, with compassion and sorrow and tenderness to the place where our world is in pain. We need people who will use all of their God-given skills to analyze where things have gone wrong and to come to the place of pain and to hold over the wound the only medicine which will really heal which is the love of Christ 
made incarnate once more, your smile and mine, your tears and mine, your patient analysis and mine, your frustration and mine, your joy and mine. And so my question for us as we close this morning is, where is your line of work slanted? Where is it slanted in the wrong way? If it's true that the infection of sin has begun to derail things in the world, then how is it slanted? I was talking with Jim Cole earlier today, talking about in the business community, the stories that he hears, where so often in the corporate environment, everything is oriented around better profits and competitive advantages. And so sometimes there's a temptation to do something unethical that gives you the corporate edge, like Bill Belichick videotaping other teams' practices. (coughs) Cheaters. And you may say, well, in my line of work, there's this slant towards doing the bare minimum, or there's this slant to being harsh with the children in the classroom. And And you might be able to name it better than I can. But in what ways is your line of work slanted? And then the question is, how? How can you reshape it, bend it back in small and symbolic ways? See, here's the thing. Are you going to revolutionize your whole industry? Maybe, but probably not. We had bigger dreams when we were young, right? We're going to change the whole culture of Hollywood. You might not, but you might make an extraordinary movie that moves people in the right way. What are the small and symbolic ways that you can bend it back? I talked to a veterinarian this morning who talked about the people that come to his office in places of profound pain because all else in their life is falling apart and their pet is their one place of security. And how in those moments he's able to weep with them and even pray with them. In what ways is your line of work bent, skewed towards selfishness and greed and evil? But in what ways can the Holy Spirit be at work through you to bend it back, to shape it back, small and symbolic ways? See, this is how our work is not just an opportunity to use our words to talk about Jesus. It is that. But it's also how our work itself can bear witness to a different king. Our work itself can say, you know what? My God is not money. My God is not early retirement. My God is not a bigger house. My God is the king of the world, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, the one who weeps with the broken, the one who lifts up the weary, the one who mends together, the binds up the brokenhearted. This is why I've been sent into the world so that the captives can go free, so that the poor can be fed. In what way can your line of work be reshaped to bear witness to King Jesus?